to reply guys the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us i am kate willett and i'm julia claire um so we this week we got to be guests on west wing thing not sure when that episode is going to come out but i think like next week but we we watched hillary clinton's master class with dave anthony and josh wilson and that was very fun it was wild i um it's hillary teaches you resilience Oh yeah. Well, that's good because I'm going to need some resilience. Um, I, need, I think we all need resilience. Um, but yeah, we learned, we watched episodes like what, like five, six and seven of her, of the resilience. You know, what would be awesome is if in the moments of my life where I needed resilience, I also had billions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> that would fucking rule, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, had a, a large estate in, uh, chappaqua yeah you know someone's pissing you off you just have them murdered just kidding yeah we don't believe that <laughs> on this podcast um, i don't believe it but i but okay here's the thing i really had a lot of fun on that podcast but we went pretty we went for a long time and i will say that i ended up defending hillary clinton way more than i wanted to on that podcast i didn't uh, feel like you were defending her I didn't, I don't know. Okay. Listeners, I, decide for yourself. Yeah, decide for yourself. I I mean, I just basically, like, and in my defense of her, it's just mostly about the, like, you know, the the most base level stuff that, sh- that like, women in politics go through. Obviously, using that as, like, not, not using that as any excuse for her politics, which I do not agree with. But, yeah, I, I mean, because, I mean, think because Dave and Josh are, were like so hardcore about her i just was like i i did feel compelled at points to be more defensive of, of old hill than i previously imagined i could be <laughs> i'm gonna defend hillary clinton to my bones if she runs again i know i don't think she will but whatever um, there's talk of it i just want it to happen it would be so hilarious i do think it's very well first of all this woman does have a humiliation fetish or something because we hate people who (laughs) come on (laughs) stop look it's a basic consent you know matt iglesias needs to i i hope matt iglesias is listening to this podcast it's fine to have a humiliation fetish but everyone participating in it has to consent right yeah that's the basics you know so yeah but i mean the fact that she like literally sells butter emails stuff as merch is crazy that's insane um and she's constantly promoting it and it's like someone was pointing this out on twitter today it's like she's just constantly reminding us that she lost ow sorry i just got a attacked by little pearl for a second (laughs) she put a claw on me so sorry about that um no i completely agree um well i had a really good conversation this week with a writer i really love a brooklyn-based writer here uh named jamie hood and she is 
she's freaking awesome um and we talked about this piece that she just wrote for the drift magazine um about the state of feminism as it is you know she owes the i think it's called uh the girl boss and the anti-woke cool girl and it's a, it was an interesting piece really short piece. yeah but i think you know i mean it's kind of just talking about like in sort of the the annoyance the justified annoyance that people have with the excesses let's say of liberal feminism the classism yeah. the racism at times and also um you know the kind of like uh backlash to it that can i don't know be a little bit that neither one of those positions is really radical or advancing anything and i she put it much better than i do but i think it was a really good piece and i think well, listeners that, will enjoy this interview yeah that's i'm excited to listen to that because what is that if not the entire conceit of this podcast is that we were neither anti-woke nor anti- woke yeah, <laughs> yeah like we're not like anti-woke girl cool girls or um lib girl bosses yeah jamie's cool i mean and I what if again what if we discovered that there's simply the no money uh in our particular position <laughs> we can't capitalize on being nice ladies nice ladies <laughs> oh man i don't know though i mean it's like i mean i, I when it comes to like engaging and sort of like the most inflammatory aspects of the discourse if you will like Mm -hmm. unless I really believe something you couldn't fucking pay me enough to participate in it because yeah it's it's so hell to like these people that are just like I don't know man these these fucking culture war guys that are just always saying terrible shit and then they're like I'm not gonna apologize for it or you know women too I guess people of all genders doing that stuff but I, I mean it's just it's it's like very it looks very stressful to me when I observe it you yeah know? well I mean I I think I was reading a gawker piece that had a line and I'm vaguely paraphrasing but it was like the culture wars are not meant to be won they're meant to be monetized it's like the people who again, who are on either side of the most like inflammatory takes are the one who, the ones who are like making a ton of money. Um, or even not as much sometimes you really can only make a lot of money by doing cultural war from a right-wing perspective. You can't really, I feel like there's not as much money in the liberal stuff. If you're like Alex no, no, Jones. No, 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 yeah. no. I mean, like, I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know if they're like, you know, the anti-woke, crowd they make of and they're of i would say they're of varying political stripes they're like anti-woke podcasts of um that are like vaguely left yeah they make a shit they make a shit ton of money that's true yeah that's definitely true everyone's on about these canadian truckers right now they're going through i'm just gonna let that one play out i just yeah I don't Justin, know. Justin Trudeau is in hiding. Um, it's it's funny because so the the truckers are in. I mean, they're all across the bridge between Detroit and Windsor, Ontario. Yeah. Um, and then they're also all in Ottawa, which is the nation's capital. 
And so my boyfriend is from Ottawa. And your boyfriend is Jordan Peterson. That's right. Um, and he is my lobster daddy. And um, <laughs> I just love, I love how, I love what a rational male he is. I love hierarchy I love when he speaks so rationally. Oh my God, lobster hierarchy. Um, yeah, so Ottawa is, how can I describe it? I went there for the first time this summer, this past summer, and everyone there is very polite. It's, uh, you know, it's the, the capital of Canada, but it's not, <laughs> it was only chosen because uh, it's exactly halfway between Mon- Montreal and Toronto. It was chosen by the queen uh, because it's, it's, they didn't want, they wanted neutral territory that wouldn't be too French or too English. Um, but everyone there is like, it's just kind of a, you know, for the capital of the city, the capital of the country, there's really, it's pretty quiet. Uh, everyone there is very polite. It's a lot of bureaucrats. Um, it's how I describe Ottawa is like DC without black people. Um, and so it's just very like, everyone's like goes to bed early. I don't know. And that's why I was at dinner this week with my boyfriend and one of his childhood friends who was also from Ottawa. And they were talking about how Ottawa is like not intellectually ready for something like this to happen. They don't have, they aren't prepared. Like they are just so flabbergasted by the idea that something like this could happen that that's why it's paralyzed the city. There haven't been like these massive counter protests or anything like that, which I think you would definitely see in a, in cities, uh, in the U S certainly. Um, I just remember it made me think of, and there were a few different times that people tried to have like men's rights rallies or like Trump protests in Boston. Mm -hmm. And it would be like, a hundred people would show up and then like 8,000 counter protesters would show up. Sean's punching Sean's Sean's punch Sean on Sean violence. Yeah. Um, and it's just nothing like nothing like that is happening there. So yeah, the prime minister, Justin Trudeau is in hiding. Um, and there's just like a bunch of truckers who are flying Confederate flags in Ottawa and the, yeah, they basically shut down the border, but again, between Detroit, Detroit and Windsor, Ontario, which is, and I didn't know this, the busiest, it's like the busiest border in North America. It's like where a quarter of Canada's exports go through that bridge and they've like shut down the bridge. Do you think that when they fly the Confederate flags, they're like, it's a boat or heritage? Yeah, that's right. It's not a boat hate. It's, it's, <laughs> um, you know, I'm uh, just going to get a beaver tail and talk about <laughs> our heritage. And, uh, we're going to go get a skate in afterwards. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, no, I... I don't know. It's really, it's really crazy. And it's, it's just been going on for so, and again, the city is paralyzed. They haven't, I don't know. They, they didn't arrest them right away. And therefore it's just like got out of control. And now it's just, 
and it's crazy because it's 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 about protesting the vaccine but 90 percent of truckers in canada are vaccinated it's just like this 10 percent that are so loud clearly and then have attracted every like right-wing kook in the great white north yeah i mean i definitely see a lot of discourse about how you know vaccines and especially vax mandates are anti-working class but i mean most people who have died of covid are working class people you know like if you look at who actually was pushing to continue remote schooling it was was working class people like it's also it's it's there's i've not heard a salient argument backing that up backing that up that anti-working class accusation i just don't yeah i mean it's like the working class is never going to be a monolith of people who all think the same thing it's not i mean there's going to be right-wing people in every single economic class that's the way it is but it's it's fine to oppose um I don't know. It's fine to oppose right-wing policies. Like it's just because like if a working class person thinks something that is super, you know, right-wing shit, it doesn't mean that you don't continue fighting for that person to have healthcare. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, believe that that person should have, you know, housing for their entire life, but you don't have to like, no, you don't have to agree on every single, especially like culture war type issue. No. Yeah. And I mean, there just is, yeah, the anti-working class argument just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. One, because honestly, at this point, most working class people are vaccinated anyways, and like voluntarily so. Um, And also I understand, like, obviously our healthcare system is fucked and in the U.S. it's a disgrace, but the vaccine is free. Uh, it's the easiest healthcare to get in that I've ever gotten in my lifetime. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that there's lots that they should be doing, you know, mandating that employers and mandating and enforcing employers give time off work and the days after for the vaccine. I mean, like there's, there's lots of shit that the government should be doing to make it more, you know, accessible. I'm even, mm-hmm. I'd even be in favor of paying people like a, an offer. You can't refuse amount, <laughs> amount of money to get the vaccine, but it's like almost a million people at this point in the United States are dead from COVID. And, you know, I'm not like one of those, Hey, you have to stay in your house for the rest of your life people or something. Not that they think that there's even that many people like that, but there, there are some, like there, there are some, are some yeah. there are some, and you know, I don't personally feel like that's, that's not where I'm at with it. Right. But yeah. at the same time, like with these kind of basic measures, like vaccines and masking in crowded places, I'm sorry. It's so easy to do, you know, it really is. And you know, this has been going on for a long time. This anti-vax hysteria. It, the thing is, is that it was a, in years past, it was a lot more fringe. It was just seen as exactly what it is, which is kind of a, a, a kooky, like fringy, a kooky sort of conspiracy theory type thing. 
but now it's become borderline mainstream if not mainstream if you know you you have a lot of celebrities who are like openly anti-vax and who Aaron uh, Rodgers Shailene Woodley right Shailene Woodley Miles Teller I don't even know who that is I'm so out of it West Elm Caleb West Elm Caleb um you know I miss him Crate and Barrel Josh and Pier yeah. One imports Peter, <laughs> <laughs> but Bed Bath yeah. and Beyond, Bob. <laughs> but yeah, the you know I was uh, you know on on Twitter there was a physician who was like someone came a patient came in today and refused the tetanus vaccine, and just like the larger implications of what this is going to do to our communities like are we going to see resurgences of these like kind of long dead long controlled diseases yes if i don't and the thing is i just don't know what could possibly change their minds at this point because you know this all started because of that bunk vaccine uh, like the vaccine and autism quote unquote study, um, for which the physician who conducted it was stripped of his medical license. Andrew Wakefield. Yeah. (laughs) Andrew Wakefield. And so that's, but that's been disproved. That's been like disproven for so long and it's still, He's still like a speaker. We've talked about him on the show before. He still like gets hired to speak at conferences. People still on the listen conspiracy cruise. Conspiracy. Oh I, um, I I really wanted to go on that. <laughs> it's like I don't know. I, I I still think it would be a good time. The conspiracy as a, as a sociological yeah as a sociological podcast um, from experience. the cruise. Yeah, but anyways, speaking it's like of something, I'm I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to go to my friend's bachelorette party this summer and it's being hosted um, by a girl who uh, dated my boyfriend for a month. (laughs) So I want to go to that as a sociological experiment. That's so funny. Um, So see if I can uh, chill, which I can't. That's only a month though. That's a long time ago. I know. I, I know. I just, every time I think about it, it makes me want to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, let's, I hope you make it, you know, I hope you hang in there, Julia. Um, so speaking of something that is, you know, it's not a conspiracy, but this, this is the kind of thing that I think provides uh, fodder for a lot of the conspiracies. So it came out this week that the CIA has been collecting data in bulk without a warrant um, on Americans for years. It was a report that came out um, in Congress this week. Uh, Still don't know what exactly the data is. Um, You know, obviously like with the Snowden reveal, um, there was, he revealed that there was mass surveillance happening, Um, but Mm -hmm. there's uh, under the, uh, the Patriot Act, but um, 
the uh yeah they're they're collecting a bunch of data on us basically well i don't know if it's on us or who or what but it's 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 not good um so uh yeah this is it's this is pretty fucked up yeah you know it's nothing new for the old cia but i wonder i mean Oh, and a specific. I wonder what they're looking for. Yeah, so specifically, um, th- they were hiding this also from Congress. Uh, it yeah. also from the executive branch. There was not even like the FISA authorization. So basically, this was kept secret from everyone. That's like you know what kind of this is. I mean, it's it, it, it just went rogue, basically. You know. As they are want to do, I think. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's, I mean, they are like a covert agency. They are like a secret organization and they are always doing stuff like this. Yeah. Um, At what point are we, oh, there, there was a time, and this is like um, a dark truth that I need to uh, get out there. There was a time when I was like, I had just graduated from college and I didn't know what to do. And my dad tried to convince me to apply for the CIA pathways program, which is for recent college graduates. You could have hung out with mayor. And Pete. I could have hung out with mayor Pete. Um, but I got like two pages into the application and I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I think that to join the CIA, they have to like interview everyone that you've ever hung out with in your whole life. Like some like people, like men in black type people show up to interview like the people that you smoked pot with in high school and shit, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I imagine that. And Mayor Pete is someone who I believe has truly never done a drug. Yeah. Chasen has though. Jason, yeah, definitely. Jason did improv. We know that he has done at least one drug. Yeah, probably. What drugs do you think Jason has done? And that drug is called Zip Zab Zop. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I feel like Jason has probably done... I bet Jason has done ketamine. Yeah, I was going to say ketamine, yeah. But I don't know, though, because ketamine really has become popular like really popular in the time since chasen has been with pete and i feel like since he's been with pete he hasn't done drugs Mm. yeah they do seem like a disney couple they seem like one of those disney adult couples disney adults are so creepy they're so creepy there are oh my god they're okay one time i had a crush on a girl and i um like stalked her instagram only to find out that she was a she was like Disney adult adjacent and also like really into musical theater. So that was dark. That is, you had it. So how did you see this working between the two of you? I didn't. I once that, once all that happened, I was like, I mean, I still think she's really pretty, but I, we could never be. I would never be with a Disney adult. No, no. Oh, I definitely could never be with a Disney adult, but she was like, definitely more of like a, like she's seen every Broadway play. Oh, okay. That I could I, do. Or Broadway musical, musical in particular, musical. And I am just not, 
She knows all the words. That's a lot. Anyways, we're still mutuals on Instagram. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, okay. So I am just really excited about this interview this week. So please listen. Jamie's a really great writer too. Definitely check her out, her poems, her book, her articles. She rules and uh, have a great week, guys. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I am so excited this week to be joined by a writer that I think is so cool and just really talented. Welcome to the show, Jamie Hood. Hi Kate, how are you? I'm very tired, um, but other (laughs) than that, I'm good. So I wanted to, I've been wanting to have you on the show anyway, but recently I read this piece that you wrote for the drift magazine which i thought was really fun and you know insightful uh it's called the girl boss and the anti-woke cool girl and i'll let you tell us about this piece um so the editors at the drift magazine who are wonderful and doing such smart work um they reached out to me Um, about potentially doing a longer piece, but each issue has a section called Dispatches where they gather um, a variety of contributors to the magazine and have them do short pieces on a sort of centralized topic. And so they asked um, me to do sort of, I mean, I had free reign to just sort of like approach contemporary feminism from whatever angle I thought might be interesting. And um, yeah, I don't know. I was just sort of thinking about where we're at right now it was just I don't know if like these are people that you care about or not but in December it felt like a very strange coalescence of deaths that happened like Bell Hooks died and then Joan Didion died and then Betty White died and like I know those are three very three big three big losses yes yeah like very disparate people and like political types or like celebrity types but like three women who were like very important to sort of like my feminist and like feminine education um I love that Betty White was important to your (laughs) oh my god no serious I was like raised on golden girls so um I used to watch it with my mom so it was like yeah I don't know it was just a big one um and so having all of that sort of like loss in the span of like just a couple weeks um got me thinking about like what the state of feminist the sort of like feminist contemporary is and why I feel so dissatisfied with it and why I think like a lot of other people feel dissatisfied with it and are very like loath to identify as feminist now which was not necessarily the case when I was when I was growing up I was raised a feminist and and identified as identify as one um so is that sorry that's like a little rambly but no no I was just about to express that you know I think that that gets at why I like this piece because you know I think that like you you captured something about why it feels like a bummer sometimes to identify as a feminist right now because so you kind of break it down in the piece that it's like the kind of culturally predominant strain of feminism is still, unfortunately, this very like girl boss type feminism. Maybe we're not where we were at, you know, peak lean in publication, <laughs> Hillary Clinton campaign. But, 
um, you know, there's still like this, uh, it's feminism has still been very, you know, sort of like uh, popularized in a way that has removed, I think, the more radical elements, um, including calls for economic justice like it's Mm -hmm. you know being uh sort of very promoted as this like individual project of Mm -hmm. empowerment and then there's definitely a segment um you know left and otherwise that has you know a reasonable important critique of that but has kind of um you know made it like against it made the critique into like this is a critique of feminism rather than this particular strain when you know the feminism in and of itself like certainly doesn't have to be that you know it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be mm-hmm. about like ceos or whatever so yeah, <laughs> I, I thought that yeah i just i thought you did a good job of capturing the the disenchantment right now that people i think are feeling who yeah. maybe have been feminists for a while of just like uh, this is okay you got the people saying that feminism is not cool they are right but uh, that sucks <laughs> you know <laughs> so yeah. yeah um no thank you so much for saying that um yeah I mean I also I think it's important like you you pointed out that we're not in like that peak moment of sort of like girl boss feminism and I think that we may be past that moment like 2018 2019 2020 um I feel like the it was in 2020 in the that summer when like a bunch of the the CEOs stepped stepped down right what? like Audrey Gelman <laughs> stepped down from the wing around that time and I think that's when maybe um, Sophia Maruso at Nasty Gal also stepped down. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I I guess what I was trying to articulate, at least in part in the piece, was that I I do think we're past the peak and I think what we are in in this moment is uh, backlash against sort of what is being identified as feminism but like you said like doesn't have to be what we imagine feminism to do so I think that I'm trying to think of like the all the times recently that I've heard someone use the word feminist in earnest (laughs) to describe a turf or a swerve basically (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think if I've heard any I've tried to think of for anyone described recently a feminist doing something that was good good. yeah Um, right yeah Uh, um no I can't think of any I mean it is early in the morning yeah Um, (laughs) but you know this backlash against feminism you know I think let's take me too um which Mm -hmm. brought up in the piece is you know there's definitely been I mean, I think there was this, you know, moment in what it was me too to start like October 2017 or something like that. There was definitely yeah. a moment where it felt really possible to kind of, I don't know, you know, perhaps shift the power dynamics a little bit. And, you know, that men who uh, attack people or assault people or harass people would not be, you know, able to do so with impunity anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we were not that long into it before we realized, oh, yeah, no, this is definitely like still most people are going to be able to do this um, with impunity. Right. Like a certain certain amount of uh, celebrities were held accountable in some way. Some of them have returned to work. But it, for people who are not celebrities, it didn't seem to have much of an impact whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Me Too was so strange because I I brought that up in the piece to say that like it seemed like this like very energizing moment for like three months and then it it all collapsed. Um, I mean, I don't know. It was like never quite clear what the inner like that energy was going to direct like a sort of new vision of feminism towards. But it did seem like a moment of possibility, you know, which was exciting. But yeah, I mean, within a year, we watched like the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh. And it was sort of like, in addition to all the sort of like celebrity commoditization of Me Too, um, in addition to that, and seeing these other sorts of like failures of a, a, a superficial vision of the movement or whatever we were calling it, there was also just this like kind of totalizing um, disappointment in the legal and juridical system. Um, and, and looking at it like that as, as a real political failure and not just a failure of optics. Yeah, I think there's also been, I, I mean, there's also been, you know, multiple instances where we've seen, I think particularly, you know, in the 2020 primary, multiple instances where like causes that would you know be described as like feminist, like traditionally feminist things that, you know, benefit gender equality um were sort of pitted against economic equality for people which is like in my opinion sort of ridiculous because Mm -hmm. I mean those two things can and should go together but Mm -hmm. I mean like a lot of the discourse around the Bernie Sanders campaign for example was like oh you know yeah um free college well yeah that's great but um what is that going to do for women it's like well you know (laughs) send them to college you know but just like this kind of idea that (laughs) if something was also helping men you know white guys especially that it couldn't be feminist and I think that a lot of people sort of saw right through that especially because we do have unprecedented student debt people do really need medical care and I think you know, it, the discourse around that definitely, I think, put a lot of people off, including like myself, a longtime feminist. Mm-hmm. So you identify as a feminist? Uh, yeah, I do, but not as loudly as I used to. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it's interesting too, like the, that sort of economic inequity um, and tying that into gender inequity. I mean, it's like sort of never been more clear, even in even in terms of just like looking at the statistics around sort of pandemic labor. Um, I mean, like the numbers of women who have had to leave the workforce on a more permanent basis, like to go back to sort of like primary child rearing um, and like who is being disproportionately impacted like as frontline workers, because like a lot of the conversation around that like kind of ignores the service industry is like a very like woman dominated industry and that women are frequently in positions of service and the particularly women of color um and so like it, it just feels like a lot of these disparities are are like super foregrounded and like exacerbated right now um because of the pandemic and the sort of political turn towards both what is the word I'm looking for um 
sort of like total polarization and um, also like the right wing and reactionary turn in, in both American politics and sort of globally. I actually feel like the cultural strain that's really rising right now is definitely that right wing uh, anti cancel culture. I'm the backlash essentially to all of mm-hmm. it. Um, I mean, it, it's, you know, I'm in comedy and it, I definitely, I think, can say without a shadow of a doubt that like what is popular the easiest way to get a fan base you know doing really well it is all i think very right wing putting it in quotes free speech i mean i think that the the right wing thing is is super 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 popular right now and 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 also to your point um in a way things are worse for a lot of women you know than they have been in, in a long time like a lot of people that i know as you mentioned, like, are basically not able to do their jobs anymore because of full-time childcare. And then, you know, tons of people are trapped in abusive situations. And mm-hmm. there is definitely like a segment of the country that has, because of lack of childcare and pandemic stuff, had to uh, return to the, the 1950s lifestyle with a lot less options than mm-hmm. to be. And it's, it's scary, but um, yeah, it feels like it's kind of other than an article here and there being somewhat dismissed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if I know you're not a psychic, but if, <laughs> if you were That's not true, I <laughs> what, like what, what do you what direction or directions do you see that this conversation about feminism and what it can be and should be? where might that go in your estimation? I think, well, it's uh, it's difficult to answer, even though I am definitely a psychic. Um, Just thinking, I mean, because like in the piece, I sort of like try to generate a call against like, you know, cynicism and against doomerism. Um, But I think that, it's hard for me. I don't know, just like person, I'm a very depressed person. And so um, I think that like, when I'm trying to predict a future, I typically go towards the worst outcomes. Um, But, you know, what I'm hopeful for is that we sort of as a people are coming up to a, essentially a breaking point. And the congealing of all these like, sort of, again, I use the word exacerbated a lot, but these exacerbated inequities, um, the sort of congealing of all of these together in this moment, I'm hoping will be more of a mobilizing force for people than one that is paralyzing and that we're going to try to look into working to dismantle these inequities in a coalitional uh, approach, you know, like sort of Because, I mean, we talk a lot about intersectionality um, and sort of like feminist conversations and anti-racist conversations. And the word has become extremely popularized and and it comes up on Twitter all the time. And then there are all these arguments on Twitter about whether or not it's being used correctly, et cetera. Um, But I think that like one of the things that we have to do is like to sort of not only talk about intersectionality, 
and interlocking systems of oppression, but actually like recognize that our politics and our political organizing have to operate in those same ways to, to sort of like battle multiple things at once. And so like trying to imagine a more coalitional politics that is sort of juggling gender inequity, transphobia, uh, like, you know, sort of anti-racist, like um, organizing and environmental activism, all of these things sort of coming together to be something that we're like imagining like a broader future that is better for everyone as opposed to just people who manage to grasp onto sort of like the last straws of power. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. When you describe that, though, I was thinking of like, what would the environmentalist version of the girl boss be? Um, <laughs> it's like <laughs> that one lady we read about in the 90s who like lived in the redwood tree for two years and then made a shit ton of money on her book. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I didn't I don't think I heard about this redwood lady, but I want uh, to. She's amazing. Her book is actually really good. I think her name is like Julia something butterfly so she was like she was in one of those like eco I don't even know if I would necessarily say it was like an eco-terrorist movement but it was a very eco-radical movement and sometime in the 90s I want to say and um, they were trying to save this redwood that I think they named Luna Um, and so she went up in the tree like 200 feet up and built a platform and she was going to just be there for a little while but the like people trying to chop it down kept coming and she was like no I guess I'll just like stay here and so she was up there for two years and she survived like a really really shitty hurricane or typhoon or I don't remember it's been like 25 years since I read this book anyway when I hear that story I don't like the the way that I'm empathizing with that story I'm not projecting myself onto the person in the random tree I feel like if I was involved in that story somehow it would be as the partner of the person in the redwood tree like do you are you thinking about coming down or like um what's what's going on here do you you want to see a movie next week or i don't know are we still a thing um just like you personally killing the redwood because you need more attention (laughs) um so the other aspect of this piece um that you mentioned was this kind of like rise of you know anti-woke culture and um I mean I don't know if it can be considered a culture it's ultimately I think like anti-woke as like an expressed ideology is something that I've never heard anyone talk about in real life um except Mm -hmm. for people who are too online yeah so a lot of us are too online certainly most people who listen to this podcast are (laughs) so um you know, anti-wokeness, that's uh, kind of like, I mean, I guess, you know, pushing back against wokeness, you know, sometimes in ways that are, I don't know, justified and funny, because I mean, every once in a while, like, I mean, not, you see like these completely galaxy brain takes online of like, I mean, yesterday, I caught a little bit of a discourse about I think someone said that they wanted to have a queer cafe where people would be, would have to have sex and they would be mandatory (laughs) and people were discussing whether that was oppressive and ContraPoints tweeted about it every once in a while. And I'm like, 
man, I completely understand why people are annoyed with like all the discourses. <laughs> but, you know, this like anti-wokeness, in my opinion, is, is sort of like a, a kind of hollow and, you know, contrarian ideology. Because right. while there are some, you know, useful critiques of the way that identity politics is, is weaponized, I mean, mm-hmm. I, what do you want to do you know just like make fun of stuff i mean what's the vision there i think you know yeah i yeah i mean well it isn't an ideology like it's essentially sort of an absence of having one it's just about going against whatever is seen as like cringe or whatever i don't know i mean like maybe you're more tapped in than i am i used to be like on twitter all the time and in the past like couple years i like I go on and I post my stupid little tweets about like my dog and my boyfriend and like say hi to like a couple of my friends. And then I get off because as soon as I start scrolling, I'm like so disappointed and I start hating everyone. And I, I don't like feeling like that. And you're right. Like I, I do kind of end up, I don't want to be the sort of person who looks at stupid little takes on Twitter and decides to become a fucking like monster, like an, an unethical freak monster. It's easy to do. I feel like, I don't know. It's easy to just see some somebody say something so dumb and then just quote tweet it and be like, why would someone think this is something that's dumb? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I think that I am trying as I get older to be more open and generous. And part of that has gone hand in hand with not always being open to every discourse on Twitter, which made me angry and annoyed and mean. Oh man. I it's I relate to that a hundred percent. So uh this is you know a question that isn't about your article, but our listeners will certainly appreciate the answer here. What did you do to remove yourself from online? Anything <laughs> <laughs> addiction? um uh, sort of like a multitude of approaches um the main thing that really got me off of being sort of like hyper available to social media was writing my book um which I let's see um, I guess it was almost two years ago now um I wrote my first book and I decided to go off essentially go offline except for promotional stuff um during that process and it took me about four months to write the book and then I revised for about three months and then was back and forth with my publisher for two so essentially it was like an eight or nine month process of book stuff that just like really kept me um incredibly busy which I this is like bad advice I guess because like you know not everyone's out there writing a fucking stupid book or whatever but that's be- uh, maybe why aren't they writing a book is it because yeah, like posting so. <laughs> it's because they're posting yeah <laughs> I mean, that is one thing I will say, like, don't waste all your all, like all of your good ideas on fucking posts because you're not getting paid for that shit. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that like having, it sounds so facile, but like, you know, just having shit that's not online, that's important to you. Um, I think I just, I also just sort of like built in like a really more strict routine like getting on my bike every single day and like going out for like an hour and just doing that or like I was doing like long during the pandemic with one of my best friends like we would go like three or four mornings a week we would go on like a two hour long walk together oh that's awesome 
yeah it was great my dog loved it and yeah I don't know just sort of I mean like I <laughs> I'm being cringe but um yeah I don't know just sort of building a routine into your day that isn't like constantly attached to, to the digital space you know it's been something that's super crucial for me that's awesome it made me also your answer also made me think I wonder if these people that are posting really really terrible takes they're just trying to save their good ideas <laughs> that is the most generous reading of this that I can imagine. Like, yeah, they're like, just you wait. Like this incredible book will be coming out very soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This post just blowing off some steam, you know, just warming up the engine. Well, um, tell us about your book. Um, oh yeah, the first book, I, it was, so I was approached by Grieveland, which is a small radical press um, based in Cleveland. I knew Brendan and uh, Brendan Joyce and Kevin Latimer run it. And I knew them sort of a, as on an acquaintance level, sort of through poetry circles. And um, they started this press right around the time the pandemic happened. And they asked me if I wanted to do a book length project for them. And I you know, I, I'm a bartender. So I, for a very long time after the pandemic shut everything down, I didn't have any work. So I went from working at three or four bars, like six nights a week to having nothing to do. And I was just finally able to actually write. I had like real time and like energy, um, which was great. And so I ended up sort of essentially doing, um, like a pandemic text so I did um like a hybrid book that was partly a pandemic diary of the first three or four months of the pandemic and then um the middle section was like a 40 page narrative poem and then the last section happened right at the end of the revision process because I met my my boyfriend um, and I decided to write about the sort of like opening of like blossoming of my beautiful, perfect relationship um, and wrote about that and included that in the manuscript at the last minute after getting my boyfriend's permission to write about very intimate stuff. Oh, that's so. awesome. I didn't realize that you two had met in the pandemic. That's mm -hmm. Yeah, that yeah. summer. That's beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. Some good things still happening in the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it sounds really weird to say, but I actually had, you know, I published a book. I met like an amazing man and those things, there were some blessings. So, so, um, you know, before we sort of close out here, um, I just wanted to, you know, sort of like, for people that are, you know, feeling annoyed with this sort of like, you know, discourse about feminism, like, I, I don't know, who are some people that you feel like are writing about things in a, in a really like exciting and relevant way or people that you admire that, you know, are would be potentially refreshing for people to, to check out? Oh, sure. Like old or contemporary or either one, just, just like stuff either. you love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mentioned bell hooks at the top of the interview. She's so good. Um, she's so wonderful. I, like one of the things that I keep, one of the texts of hers, I keep returning to 
in the last couple of years is um, actually not a sort of explicitly political or feminist text, although it has like those consequences as well. But um, her book about love and loving, which is just called All About Love. Um, I think that's a really important, beautiful book that I, I would recommend. I just read um, Amiya Srinivasan's book, The Right to Sex, which I think, especially in terms of like, you know, if people are like looking at the, the little piece I did um, and wondering like sort of about feminist history, um, she does like an incredible chapter that is an account of the, the feminist porn wars in the 80s and sort of looking at the legacies of that into the contemporary and the way, and you know, it, it's one of the things I was trying to get at in the piece was like looking at the ways that reactionary responses to feminism and backlash against sort of like feminism that sometimes have origins and rightful critiques uh, frequently like go hand in hand with right-wing ideologues and, and other like damaging conservative anti-woman sort of politics. Um, so yeah, Amiya Srinivasan's book, The Right to Sex is great. It's also about sort of like consent culture and Me Too and the porn wars and- Incels um, too, right? She or does no. talk about incels. Yeah, there is some, there is a section about that um, and sort of like feminism and, and, it's, and the bridge to a sort of like socialist feminism, which is another thing that I think like gets left out a lot when we talk about feminism in the contemporary is like so many of the sort of like political origins of like 60s, 70s feminism were in like, like Marxist circles, you know? And so like the idea that like the only feminism that is possible is a capitalist one is just, uh, I think a, a failure to imagine, to remember yeah. history and to imagine new histories. What were you gonna say? I just watched Hillary Clinton's master class and yeah, Wait, really <laughs> part of it for another podcast. And I'm going to say, yeah, you know, world domination. That's the only feminism that I believe in personally. <laughs> yeah. But those are two, two of the big ones that I, one old, one new that I would recommend. Um, Amiya Srinivasan, I think is a really interesting thinker. She writes for the London review of books a lot. Um, and obviously also like, you know, if people like the piece I did, there's a whole section in that issue of the drift with other incredible contemporary writers who I feel very like fortunate to be in company with and that issue who are also writing about their sort of like takes on modern feminism right now. So, Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I've been feeling like there is, I don't know, to me, I've been feeling like I, I haven't found people in recent times that I feel like are describing the culture in ways that feel really accurate and insightful to me, maybe mm -hmm. because a lot of the people that I used to kind of, you know, be like, oh, this person is going to put it into words. They're, they really excelled at like a different time, you know, and mm -hmm. like in terms of, you know, describing, I don't know, we're in a very different world than we were a couple of years ago, you know? Yeah. So yeah um well i'm i'm excited to check those out and i really appreciate your coming on the show and i know you don't go online that much but if people want to follow your work where can they do so oh um my twitter is i mean i'm not offline anymore i just like don't really engage with the feed but um which do you do you think it's oppressive to have a queer cafe where you have to have sex if you go in there <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> is that I, a know, I, I uh, 
I'm going to like plead the fifth on that one. I am in a beautiful heterosexual relationship despite all odds. So <laughs> I feel like I'm not equipped to talk about queer cafes. Um, <laughs> I vote with you. I don't know. I'm with her. <laughs> I don't think it's oppressive, but I wouldn't go there. See, if it is like an option of going in or not going in, I guess if you know the terms of the cafe. I mean, do you have to have sex with like anyone who's in there? Like, is it just like mandatory sex with all people in the cafe or is there like some sort of like option? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Okay, well, I'm not going to this cafe. No, neither would I. But there's also like plenty of cafes I don't frequent, so... That's true. Yeah. And like yeah. most of them, I, as far as I know, don't require you to have sex to get your latte. <laughs> so. Well, this is news to me. Uh, I've been going above and beyond for my latte. You just like go, <laughs> you're just like fucking at every cafe you go into. <laughs> yeah. I have, uh, yeah, I've, I have dated a few baristas for sure, but. <laughs> um, awesome. It's New yeah. York. Yeah. All right. So you are on Twitter at the very hot mom, I think, right? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome. Uh, that's also my Instagram. Yeah. I, I, um, made all of my handles very hot mom because it felt good and fun and true. Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there's some very hot moms out there, you know? Yeah. Representation. So <laughs> trying to age out of the, like, I'm only 21 market and into the milk market. So hell yeah. Oh man, speaking of porn wars, it was, it always is weird when I date someone, I found out that their favorite genre of porn is MILF porn. I'm like, hmm, am I MILF? <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been so fun and I really appreciate you coming on and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash replyguys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is your land.